So what was your favourite part of the holidays? Really? You sure? Okay. And uh, Disneyland? You uh, you liked that? When we went there? It was okay. Okay. <laughs> and uh, Vietnam with the snorkeling and the helicopter ride. The no. The vast landscapes of wondrous scenery didn't do it for you. No, your favourite thing was Radio Wolfgang. Huh. Well, what's that? The app. You really like the Radio Wolfgang app? Huh. Okay. Cool. And the hotel? No, that wasn't your favourite. Still, yeah. That's. It's just. You're only five years old. You sure Radio Wolfgang was your favourite thing? And getting ice cream. Right. The Radio Wolfgang app and ice cream. Great. Good summer. It was the happiest day of my life. Of all the swims I've done in the world, nothing has ever come close to that feeling of putting my feet down on Cape Town Beach. I first met Lewis Pugh about five or six years ago when we invited him on our BBC show and he was known as the human polar bear and he'd be doing these epic swims up in the North Pole to raise awareness about the polar ice caps melting. In came this guy and he was totally different from you know 99% of the guests that we had on there because he had this agenda that wasn't just kind of revolving around himself and he was thinking about things on a much higher level and thinking about how we're going to sort the planet out. He was willing to put his life on the line in order to get people to start thinking about it and it was the first time I think I'd ever met a guest and actually sat there and been in awe of this guy and thought, wow, he's really like, this is a really serious character. We stayed in touch for the next few years and when we started Wolfgang, I knew I wanted to get him on fairly quickly so he could tell the story of his life. And so we're going to start this interview with me asking him about his first memory. My first memory was at school, I think, so probably late in life, sort of around about... Uh six or seven. I went to school uh, just outside Plymouth on the edge of Dartmoor. It was a fantastic school, had an incredible headmaster. And what I remember about it was that at the end of the day, he would put us in a small bus, he'd drive us up onto Dartmoor and he'd let us run around. After about an hour or two, you'd hear the, the bus hooting get back onto the bus and then you go back for dinner. So it was beautiful to be running out there on Dartmoor, nobody, you know, stopping you and just being free and in the wilderness. And this headmaster, because I know in your book you, you, you talk about him quite a bit, he was quite a kind of prominent figure in your life, right? I think all teachers are very prominent in one's lives, for good or for bad. And uh, he was an exceptional headmaster. Uh, and so you were living down in Plymouth because your your parents, they were in the Navy? Yeah, so my father was a, was a doctor and uh, he served in the Royal Navy. And the Royal Navy at the time had a number of hospitals. They had one in Plymouth, they had one in uh, 
uh, in Gosport, they had one in Malta, they had one in Gibraltar. And so we moved around uh, these various places. But my earliest memories are from, from Plymouth and then growing up on the edge of Dartmoor in a place called Tavistock. And, and what was it like being a, a forces kid, moving around all the time? I loved it. Because some people, they can find it disruptive, right? Yeah, absolutely, because you move just generally every four years. You know, times are very, very different. These days, uh, kids of 10 and 12, they've often travelled overseas. When I was a kid, I didn't know anybody in my class who travelled overseas. I was the only person. And the reason why was because our father was in the Navy and uh, I moved with his job. And so your mum and dad, they both got medical backgrounds and I know they were both serving in the Navy at the time when they met. And this, I think it was 1967. Uh, they met very quickly. They were both looking after the same guy. And within three weeks, your dad had asked her to marry him. Yeah, it was really, really quick. I, I think both of them knew immediately that uh, they adored each other. And I, I think I can count on the one hand the number of arguments I saw my parents had during their lives. It was just very, very lucky. You know, you, you don't find many marriages like that. And if they had an argument, my father would say to my mother, Marjorie, uh, could you please come outside? I just want to have a quick word with you. And, and so uh, going to a school like this, having parents who, who loved each other uh, makes a significant difference to your life. And what kind of people were your parents? I, I know they both were particularly interested in explorers and adventure and they ended up writing books on the subject. Do you think that was kind of where the first seeds were sown? Yeah, I mean, my father was a great storyteller. And uh, he could tell a story about an event. You felt you were really there at the moment. And and some of the stories he would tell me about his travels in the Navy and as a young officer, he had been at the first atomic bomb test, the first British atomic bomb test. And he'd describe it with the most vivid detail. He'd say, Lewis, we were standing 10 kilometres away from the epicentre. And we all had protective clothing on. We all had protective goggles over our eyes. And they gave that countdown. And then they exploded that nuclear bomb. And the blast was so powerful. And the light was so blinding, I had to put my hands over my protective goggles. And when I did that, I could actually see an X-ray of the burns of my fingers. And then afterwards, we had to sweep the whole bomb site and then pick up all the dead animals. And my responsibility as a naval surgeon was to examine them for their levels of radiation. And so as a young boy, you'd be sitting, you'd be listening to these amazing stories. And then, as you mentioned, my, my mother and father wrote history books together and they loved to tell me stories about people who weren't afraid of their dreams, people who were prepared to push boundaries and... They told me about the mountaineers and the polar explorers. And they made the Arctic, the Antarctic, the Himalayas, the Andes sound so incredible. They hadn't actually been there. That's, that's the irony of the whole place. They hadn't been there, but they told me these stories. And so as a young boy, I thought one day when I leave school, I want to go to these places. What's interesting is that when I was 10, we moved out to South Africa. And the, the very, very first thing which my parents did when we went out there was they took me to the Addo Elephant National Park. And I, I remember driving into this national park and being surrounded by this enormous herd of elephants. And myself and my sister Caroline in the back of the car were so excited. Uh, the noise, the ears, the trumpeting and everything. And my father turned to us and said something very simple and very profound. He said, we will only ever truly protect those things which we love. 
And I think it was because of all those bomb tests that every holiday we went to a national park, we went to Shushlui Umfalozi, the great big Kruger National Park in the north of South Africa. It, it was, uh, you know, my, my love for the environment it didn't, didn't start in a vacuum. So you moved to South Africa in 1980, which is right in the middle of apartheid, a time where the whole world's against the country. That must have been a very strange environment to go into as a young boy. My father wanted to write a book on the Anglo-Boer War, which had happened at the turn of the century, and his mother had been South African. And he'd always said whenever he, when he retired from the Royal Navy, uh, one day he would go and live out in, in, in Africa. And yes, it was the height of apartheid. And we moved out to South Africa. We moved to a very, very small uh, university town called Grahamstown in the middle of, of an arid region called the Karoo. And that's where I had my life from the age of sort of 10 to, to 16 before we moved down to Cape Town. And so what was it like then? What was it? Because obviously, you, you know, you'd moved around a bit. You know, you'd lived a fairly kind of idyllic childhood living in the countryside in, in, in Britain. And then you go into South Africa and there's, you know, heavy duty segregation. I would imagine there's a lot of animosity in the air. How does that affect a, a young boy? When I moved out there, I went to school and everybody in the school was whites. If I was sick, I went to a hospital. It was a whites only hospital. One lived in total segregation. It was this extraordinary scenario and a, a, a town where on the other side of the railway line blacks were living in abject poverty where if you were sick and you didn't have any money it was very very difficult to get any help from the local hospital the schools were very very poor uh, there was high unemployment but this realization only came to me much later when you're 12 or 13 or 14 you bizarrely think that that's normal because you know no different. Okay, so we're going to play some music now, and the first track you've chosen is The Big Blue Overture by Eric Serra. Where does this whole connection with the sea come in? Yeah, so I moved from Grahamstown in 1986 to Cape Town, and I went to a school which was ideally situated. It was right on the beach, and it overlooked uh, the Atlantic Ocean. It's interesting because I, I just constantly couldn't stop looking out the window and looking at the ocean. And there were two people who sat next to me. One was a guy called Len John van der Bell, and the other one was a guy called Justin Strong. And continually we would be bollocked by the teacher who would say, you know, concentrate on this lesson. And I remember once the teacher saying to me, Lewis, you will not pass your matriculation exam unless you concentrate and you won't get a job out in the ocean. Well. I became a, an endurance swimmer living out in the ocean. Len John van der Waal became a professional sailor and Justin Strong became world champion surfer. So, What's the moral of the story then? <laughs> I, I think it's that our environments create us. The Atlantic Ocean there on the edge of Cape Town where you get big rough surf, the water is ice cold, it comes up from Antarctica. It's ideal for big wave surfers, it's ideal for, for endurance swimmers. It's a great training ground.
And so you're sitting there not concentrating in your lesson, you're looking out and you're, you're, you're feeling this draw from the sea. Were you much of a swimmer at this point? No, not at all. I actually had my first proper swimming lesson when I was 17. And I looked out the classroom and from the edge of the history class, you could actually see Robben Island. And Robben Island is the island in the middle of Table Bay off Cape Town where Nelson Mandela was imprisoned. And I looked at it and looked at it and looked at it. And then one day, and I don't even know where the thought came from, I thought to myself, I want to swim there. And there was something drawing me to this place. And obviously it was a height of apartheid. It was a political prison on there. One had to get permission. And I, I, I can't tell you how many letters I wrote to the minister of prisons to be able to get permission. But eventually I got permission. I got taken out to the island. I arrived there. And it was like literally like arriving in somewhere like Alcatraz. Met by prison guards, all carrying weapons. Escorted down to the beach. I'd only had a month of training. I was woefully underprepared. And when I got down to the beach, there was a whole group of black political prisoners there on the beach, cleaning up seaweed. They waved at me and I waved at them. I didn't think much of it. I was very, very nervous. I got into the water and I started swimming back to Cape Town. first hour, everything was fine. For the second hour, it started getting really, really cold. The water's icy cold off Cape Town. The third hour was the biggest struggle of my life. Eventually, I then stopped crawl. I went into breaststroke. Eventually, I got to the end there. It was the happiest day of my life. Of all the swims I've done in the world, nothing has ever come close to that feeling of putting my feet down on Cape Town Beach and my father was there and shortly afterwards he passed away. That happened in 1987. Fast forward now to 1993. I was invited onto the island by somebody who had been imprisoned in the jail there and he said something to me which shook me to my core. I said to him, what was the toughest thing about being imprisoned on this island? And he said to me, whenever any of the prison warders brought their children onto this island and we saw them or we heard them kick footballs around or play or laugh or cry and do things that children do. We thought of our children in the township that we would see once a year. And it was literally like somebody took a knife and just drove it straight through my chest and turned it. Because I remember that moment on the 1st of May 1987 where as a young white boy I walked past them I took off my clothes and I swam to freedom. But then South Africa is a very, very different place these days. But I look back at that swim with very mixed feelings now. When you first did that swim, had you twigged at that point that there was something really rotten in South Africa and there was something really wrong that was going on? and Or were you blissfully unaware? Or I began to realise that there was a slow awakening in me and the awakening really happened uh, a few years later when I went to law school because I went to law school in Cape Town and many of the lecturers there had been imprisoned. A number of them were then writing the new constitution. So when Nelson Mandela became president, they wrote a new constitution and they were involved with writing it. And it was an amazing moment because they could sit down and they could say, what rights and duties and obligations are important to us? And they could literally start with a clean slate. 
And one of the lecturers was a man called uh, Albie Sachs, and he'd been imprisoned for many times in solitary confinement. He had one arm because the other one had been blown up in a car bomb. He'd opened the door and the security service had put a bomb in his car. And he would stand there in front of us and say, what is really, really important to you? What rights are important to you? Is it freedom of life? Is it justice? Is it equality? Is it the right to a healthy environment? Is it the right to freedom of movement, to freedom of religion? What is important to you? You need to stand up for those things. And it was only there that I began to have this slow political awakening. And then also a big awakening about who am I? Am I British or am I South African? And where do my roots lie? And then all the uncertainty which was happening in South Africa, mass emigration of whites, and then this wondering, you know, should I return? And then I made that decision after I finished law school to, to return here to Britain. And I got a job in a, in, in, a, in a big maritime law firm dealing with sort of big oil pollution cases and, and representing insurers of, of big ships when they collide in the middle of the night, those type of cases. And, and did you find that fulfilling work? It was interesting. It was, it was very well paid. The problem was I just, if I was honest with myself, I just wasn't passionate about it. You're working at a law firm in London you're feeling a little bit frustrated, it's not giving you what you need, and you walk past a sign outside the army barracks in, in Chelsea and it says paratroopers wanted, right, or reservists wanted. And you thought, why not? Well, they made it look so glamorous because there was a wall and inside the wall was embedded television and there were photographs of parachuters jumping into Normandy during the Second World War and it looked fantastic. And I thought to myself, well, that sounds quite exciting. You know, I've got the time. Why don't I try this? I, I spent... Uh, about three weeks in the parachute regiment, then I got a tap on the shoulder and the guy said to me, they said, you're, we don't think you're suited for this regiment, which was 10 parachute regiment. They said, I think that you are perhaps better suited for the special air service. And so I joined 21 special air service, which is the reserve section of the SAS. I spent five years there. They were by far the toughest years of my life. Tough because special air service selection is so robust. The selection lasts one year. You're given two goes. In the 70-odd years of Special Air Service, there's only, to my knowledge, there's only one person who's ever done the selection course three times, and, and, and that is me, because, <laughs> because I failed the first two goes, uh, the first because of sickness and the second because of an injury. And there was that defining moment where I was called into the CEO's office. He said... Right, you failed second time, you're only allowed two goes, you've binned. And I stood there and I said, Sir, will you please give me a third time? And he looked at me with such surprise because nobody had ever been given a third go. And what was a, an administrative decision for him turned out to be life-changing for me because I made the, the, the third selection and that grit and determination required to go back there a third time and to endure the hardship of that course it gave me an energy and a determination which has seen me through some very very tough times subsequently at this point lewis is maintaining his job at the law firm whilst acting as a reservist for the sas on the weekends however he was about to make another big change in his life and i asked him what prompted him to do so one day i was standing outside saint paul's cathedral it was one of those beautiful summer's days 
And there was a close friend of mine who was with me at law school, David Becker. And I looked at David and I said, God, Dave, I've been working here. And I'd been working for five years in London. I said to him, I just want to go to the Arctic. My parents made this place sound so amazing. And he looked at me and he said something very simple. He said, Lewis, he said, it's so important that you follow your own dreams in life because if you don't, you're going to be following somebody else's. And he said, imagine getting to the end of your life to realize I've just been following somebody else's dreams. He said, don't do that. And so I packed my bags and off I went to this island called uh, Svalbard, which is very close to the North Pole. And that was the next sort of stage of my life. What's it like when you first step off the plane and, and look out at the tundra? Well, well let, let me just take you from the journey. So you go from Gatwick Airport, you fly to Oslo, you fly from Oslo across the Arctic Circle right to, to, to a place called Trondheim, and then from Trondheim all the way up to a place called Tromsø, uh, which is the most northern major city in, in Norway. And then you get on another plane and you fly all the way across the Arctic Ocean to this little island, an archipelago, a group of islands called Svalbard. As soon as I arrived there, I realized it, this was this was home. It was incredible, the beauty of this place. These fjords and then the glaciers and the mountain and then the, the ice. And in the winter, you have these northern lights. You look up and you have the, the reds and the orange and the purples and the greens sort of flying around in the heavens. And you imagine standing on the edge of the coast and looking out over a field and the field is frozen over. And you see a polar bear and her cub walking out on the ice. This, I mean, this was, this was where I was meant to be. What's the longest you've stayed up in the Arctic Circle? So I did seven summers there. I did one winter. I mean, I mean just to explain what a winter is like. Oof. November, December, January, February, it's 24 hours of darkness. Just imagine that, 24 hours of darkness. The sun doesn't come up for those four months. The female polar bears, they go deep down into their dens. The birds, they migrate all the way down to Africa. The sea ice freezes all the way up to the North Pole. It's quite easily minus 20, minus 30 degrees outside. It's one of the most inhospitable places on this planet. And you end up sort of becoming like an animal in this sense that you wake up uh, around about, about 10 o'clock. I, I do a little bit of work and then around about 3, 4 o'clock I go to sleep again. The opposite happens in the summer. In the summer now, we've got 24 hours of sunlight. The sea ice begins to unfreeze. The polar bears, they come out of their dens. The birds, they come back with their massive migrations. It's still very, very cold up there. But because you've got this midnight sun, so it's sunny all day long, the sun doesn't even go down below the horizon, you end up waking up at around about 3, 4 o'clock in the morning. And then in the evening, you go to bed at close on midnight. So you have a couple of hours sleep just because it's just wonderful to be outside. What are you doing? Who are you hanging out with? <laughs> I soon got a close group of friends. But remember, I don't have a job now. And I ended up getting some jobs as, as, as a tour guide 
I then went to live in a place called Honnensborg, which was on the top of Norway in a, in a small little village in the Norwegian Arctic. And I, I uh, gave bus tours to a place called North Cape, which is the most northern cape in Europe. I, I struggled by for a few years. I'd come back to Britain in the winter, earn a little bit of money there, and then just carry on. The draw of being up in the Arctic was, was just so much. Were you swimming up there at all at this point or not? No, not at all. But when, when I then started living in Honnensvog and, and seeing this place called North Cape, one day I thought to myself, I've done the most southern swim around the bottom of Africa, around Cape Agullis. Why don't I try and do a swim around North Cape? And so in 2003, I did the most northern swim in the world around this place called North Cape. And then being the type of person I am, I thought, okay, well, if I can swim around North Cape, can I push it a little bit further north and then a bit further north? But these temperatures of the water were significant. I mean, just to give you a range of water temperatures, a normal indoor swimming pool in this country would be about 27. If you swim across the English Channel, it'd be about 17 degrees centigrade. This water at North Cape was about 5 degrees centigrade. But I just, I just loved this place. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. It's impossible not to fall in love with the Arctic. And I was constantly thinking, you know, I'd come back to Britain in the winter I'd say to people, you can't believe how this place is changing. And many of them would say to me, are you sure it's not a natural cycle? And, you know, on this island, it's a small university as well, the University of Svalbard. And there are climate scientists from all over the world there. And they're all saying the same thing, that what we are seeing now has been caused in the main by us humans. And I kept thinking to myself, you know, how do I fit into this? How can I draw attention to this when everybody seems to be denying it? This to me, it was so evident that this was a very, very, very serious problem. And then one day, and I don't even know where the idea came from. I just, I pulled out a map. I'm looking at where I've swum and I think, how can I draw attention to what's happening here? And then I just look north. That suddenly dawned upon me. And that's where creativity comes in. The frustrating thing about creativity, and because I need to be creative about the ideas, is that suddenly they come and you think to yourself, why didn't I think about this years ago? And I looked at the North Pole and I thought to myself, swim across this place. And this is a place where, by rights, you shouldn't actually be able to swim. Well, in 2005, 2006, 23% of the Arctic sea ice cover had melted away. I didn't know that. So what was your favourite part of the holidays? Really? You sure? Okay. And uh, Disneyland? You uh, you liked that? When we went there? It was okay. Okay. <laughs> and uh, Vietnam, with the snorkeling and the helicopter ride, the... No. The vast landscapes of wondrous scenery didn't do it for you. No, your favourite thing was... Radio Wolfgang. Ah. What's that? The app. You really like the Radio Wolfgang app? Huh. Okay. Cool. And the hotel? No, that wasn't your favourite? Still, yeah. 
That's, it's just, you're only five years old. You sure Radio Wolfgang was your favourite thing? And getting ice cream. Right, the Radio Wolfgang app and ice cream. Great. Good summer. happiest day of my life of all the swims I've done in the world nothing has ever come close to that feeling of putting my feet down on Cape Town Beach I first met Lewis Pugh about five or six years ago when we invited him on our BBC show and he was known as the human polar bear and he'd be doing these epic swims up in the North Pole to raise awareness about the polar ice caps melting in came this guy and he was totally different from you know 99% of the guests that we had on there because he had this agenda that wasn't just kind of revolving around himself and he was thinking about things on a much higher level and thinking about how we're going to sort the planet out he was willing to put his life on the line in order to get people to start thinking about it and it was the first time I think I'd ever met a guest and actually sat there and been in awe of this guy and thought, wow, he's really like, this is a really serious character. We stayed in touch for the next few years and when we started Wolfgang, I knew I wanted to get him on fairly quickly so he could tell the story of his life. And so we're going to start this interview with me asking him about his first memory. My first memory was at school, I think, so probably late in life, sort of around about... Uh six or seven. I went to school uh, just outside Plymouth on the edge of Dartmoor. It was a fantastic school. It had an incredible headmaster. And what I remember about it was that at the end of the day, he would put us in a small bus, he'd drive us up onto Dartmoor and he'd let us run around. After about an hour or two, you'd hear the, the bus hooting get back onto the bus and then you go back for dinner. So it was beautiful to be running out there on Dartmoor, nobody, you know, stopping you and just being free and in the wilderness. And this headmaster, because I know in your book you, you, you talk about him quite a bit, he was quite a kind of prominent figure in your life, right? I think all teachers are very prominent in one's lives, for good or for bad. And uh, he was an exceptional headmaster. Uh, and so you were living down in Plymouth because your your parents, they were in the Navy? Yeah, so my father was a, was a doctor and uh, he served in the Royal Navy. And the Royal Navy at the time had a number of hospitals. They had one in Plymouth, they had one in, uh, uh, in Gosport, they had one in Malta, they had one in Gibraltar. And so we moved around uh, these various places. But my earliest memories are from, from Plymouth and then growing up on the edge of Dartmoor in a place called Tavistock. And, and what was it like being a, a forces kid, moving around all the time? I loved it. Because some people, they can find it disruptive, right? Yeah, absolutely, because you move just generally every four years. You know, times are very, very different. These days, uh, kids of 10 and 12, they've often travelled overseas. When I was a kid, I didn't know anybody in my class who travelled overseas. I was the only person. And the reason why was because my father was in the Navy and uh, I moved with his job. And so your mum and dad, they both got medical backgrounds and I know they were both serving in the Navy at the time when they met. And this, I think it was 1967. Uh, they met very quickly. They were both looking after the same guy. And within three weeks, your dad had asked her to marry him. Yeah, it was really, really quick. I, I think both of them knew immediately that uh, they adored each other. And 
I, I think I can count on the one hand the number of arguments I saw my parents had during their lives. It was just very, very lucky. You know, you, you don't find many marriages like that. And if they had an argument, my father would say to my mother, Marjorie, uh, could you please come outside? I just want to have a quick word with you. And and so uh, going to a school like this, having parents who, who loved each other uh, makes a significant difference to your life. And what kind of people were your parents? I, I know they both were particularly interested in explorers and adventure and they ended up writing books on the subject. Do you think that was kind of where the first seeds were sown? Yeah, I mean, my father was a great storyteller. And uh, he could tell a story about an event. You felt you were really there at the moment. And and some of the stories he would tell me about his travels in the Navy and as a young officer, he had been at the first atomic bomb test, the first British atomic bomb test. And he'd describe it with the most vivid detail. He'd say, Lewis, we were standing 10 kilometers away from the epicenter. And we all had protected clothing on. We all had protected goggles of our eyes. And they gave that countdown. And then they exploded that nuclear bomb. And the blast was so powerful. And the light was so blinding, I had to put my hands over my protective goggles. And when I did that, I could actually see an X-ray of the burns of my fingers. And then afterwards, we had to sweep the whole bomb site and then pick up all the dead animals. And my responsibility as a naval surgeon was to examine them for their levels of radiation. And so as a young boy, you'd be sitting, you'd be listening to these amazing stories. And then, as you mentioned, my, my mother and father wrote history books together and they loved to tell me stories about people who weren't afraid of their dreams, people who were prepared to push boundaries and... They told me about the mountaineers and the polar explorers. And they made the Arctic, the Antarctic, the Himalayas, the Andes sound so incredible. They hadn't actually been there. That's, that's the irony of the whole place. They hadn't been there, but they told me the stories. And so as a young boy, I thought one day when I leave school, I want to go to these places. What's interesting is that when I was 10, we moved out to South Africa. And the, the very, very first thing which my parents did when we went out there was they took me to the Addo Elephant National Park. And I, I remember driving into this national park and being surrounded by this enormous herd of elephants. And myself and my sister Caroline in the back of the car were so excited. Uh, the noise, the ears, the trumpeting and everything. And my father turned to us and said something very simple and very profound. He said, we will only ever truly protect those things which we love. And I think it was because of all those bomb tests that every holiday we went to a national park, we went to Shushlui Umfalozi, the great big Kruger National Park in the north of South Africa. It, it was, uh, you know, my, my love for the environment didn't, didn't start in a vacuum. So you moved to South Africa in 1980, which is right in the middle of apartheid, a time where the whole world's against the country. That must have been a very strange environment to go into as a young boy. My father wanted to write a book on the Anglo-Boer War, which had happened at the turn of the century, and his mother had been South African. And he'd always said whenever he, when he retired from the Royal Navy, uh, one day he would go and live out in, in, in Africa. And yes, it was the height of apartheid. And we moved out to South Africa. We moved to a very, very small uh, university town called Grahamstown in the middle of, of an arid region called the Karoo. And that's where I had my life from the age of sort of 10 to, to 16 before we moved down to Cape Town. 
And so what was it like then? What was it, because obviously, you, you know, you'd moved around a bit, you know, you'd lived a fairly kind of idyllic childhood living in the countryside in, in, in Britain, and then you go into South Africa and there's, you know, heavy-duty segregation. I would imagine there's a lot of animosity in the air. How does that affect a, a young boy? When I moved out there, I went to school and everybody in the school was white. If I was sick, I went to hospital. It was a whites-only hospital. One lived in total segregation. It was this extraordinary scenario and a, a, a town where on the other side of the railway line blacks were living in abject poverty where if you were sick and you didn't have any money it was very very difficult to get any help from the local hospital the schools were very very poor uh, there was high unemployment but this realization only came to me much later when you're 12 or 13 or 14 you bizarrely think that that's normal because you know no different. Okay, so we're going to play some music now, and the first track you've chosen is The Big Blue Overture by Eric Serra. Where does this whole connection with the sea come in? Yeah, so I moved from Grahamstown in 1986 to Cape Town, and I went to a school which was ideally situated. It was right on the beach, and it overlooked uh, the Atlantic Ocean. It's interesting because I, I just constantly couldn't stop looking out the window and looking at that ocean. And there were two people who sat next to me. One was a guy called Len John van der Vel, and the other one was a guy called Justin Strong. And continually we would be bollocked by the teacher who would say, you know, concentrate on this lesson. And I remember once the teacher saying to me, Lewis, you will not pass your matriculation exam unless you concentrate and you won't get a job out in the ocean. Well. I became a, an endurance swimmer living out in the ocean. Then John van der Waal became a professional sailor and Justin Strong became world champion surfer. So, What's the moral of the story then? <laughs> I, I think it's that our environments create us. The Atlantic Ocean there on the edge of Cape Town where you get big rough surf, the water is ice cold, it comes up from Antarctica. It's ideal for big wave surfers, it's ideal for, for endurance swimmers. It's a great training ground. And so you're sitting there not concentrating in your lesson, you're looking out and you're, you're, you're feeling this draw from the sea. Were you much of a swimmer at this point? No, not at all. I actually had my first proper swimming lesson when I was 17. And I looked out of the classroom and from the edge of the history class, you could actually see Robben Island. And Robben Island is the island in the middle of Table Bay off Cape Town where Nelson Mandela was imprisoned. And I looked at it and looked at it and looked at it. And then one day, and I don't even know where the thought came from, I thought to myself, I want to swim there. 
And it was something drawing me to this place. And obviously it was a height of apartheid. It was a political prison on there. You want to have to get permission. And I, I, I can't tell you how many letters I wrote to the minister of prisons to be able to get permission. But eventually I got permission. I got taken out to the island. I arrived there. And it was like literally like arriving in somewhere like Alcatraz. Met by prison guards, all carrying weapons. Escorted down to the beach. I'd only had a month of training. I was woefully underprepared. And when I got down to the beach, there was a whole group of black political prisoners there on the beach, cleaning up seaweed. They waved at me and I waved at them. I didn't think much of it. I was very, very nervous. I got into the water and I started swimming back to Cape Town. first hour, everything was fine. For the second hour, it started getting really, really cold. The water's icy cold off Cape Town. Third hour was the biggest struggle of my life. Eventually, I then stopped crawl. I went into breaststroke. Eventually, I got to the end there. It was the happiest day of my life. Of all the swims I've done in the world, nothing has ever come close to that feeling of putting my feet down on Cape Town Beach, and my father was there, and shortly afterwards, he passed away. That happened in 1987. Fast forward now to 1993. I was invited onto the island by somebody who had been imprisoned in the jail there, and he said something to me which shook me to my core. I said to him, what was the toughest thing about being imprisoned on this island? And he said to me, whenever any of the prison warders brought their children onto this island and we saw them or we heard them kick footballs around or play or laugh or cry or do things that children do. We thought of our children in the township that we would see once a year. And it was literally like somebody took a knife and just drove it straight through my chest and turned it. Because I remember that moment on the 1st of May 1987 where as a young white boy I walked past them I took off my clothes and I swam to freedom. But then South Africa is a very, very different place these days. But I look back at that swim with very mixed feelings now. When you first did that swim, had you twigged at that point that there was something really rotten in South Africa and there was something really wrong that was going on? And, or were you blissfully unaware? Or I began to realise that there was a slow awakening in me and the awakening really happened a uh, few years later when I went to law school because I went to law school in Cape Town and many of the lecturers there had been imprisoned. A number of them were then writing the new constitution. So when Nelson Mandela became president, they wrote a new constitution and they were involved with writing it. And it was an amazing moment because they could sit down and they could say, what rights and duties and obligations are important to us? And they could literally start with a clean slate. And one of the lecturers was a man called uh, Albie Sachs, and he'd been imprisoned for many times in solitary confinement. He had one arm because the other one had been blown up in a car bomb. He'd opened a door and the security service had put a bomb in his car. And he would stand there in front of us and say, what is really, really important to you? What rights are important to you? Is it freedom of life? 
Is it justice? Is it equality? Is it the right to a healthy environment? Is it the right to freedom of movement, to freedom of religion? What is important to you? You need to stand up for those things. And it was only there that I began to have this slow political awakening. And then also a big awakening about who am I? Am I British or am I South African? And where do my roots lie? And then all the uncertainty which was happening in South Africa, mass emigration of whites, and then this wondering, you know, should I return? And then I made that decision after I finished law school to, to return here to Britain. And I got a job in a, in, in, a, in a big maritime law firm dealing with sort of big oil pollution cases and, and representing insurers of, of big ships when they collide in the middle of the night, those type of cases. And, and did you find that fulfilling work? It was interesting. It was, it was very well paid. The problem was I just, if I was honest with myself, I just wasn't passionate about it. You're working at a law firm in London. You're feeling a little bit frustrated. It's not giving you what you need. And you walk past a sign outside the army barracks in, in Chelsea and it says paratroopers wanted, right? Or reservists wanted. And you thought, why not? Well, they made it look so glamorous because there was a wall and inside the wall was embedded television and there were photographs of parachuters jumping into Normandy during the Second World War and it looked fantastic. And I thought to myself, well, that sounds quite exciting. You know, I've got the time. Why don't I try this? I, I spent... Uh, about three weeks in the parachute regiment, then I got a tap on the shoulder and the guy said to me, they said, you're, we don't think you're suited for this regiment, which was 10 parachute regiment. They said, I think that you are perhaps better suited for the special air service. And so I joined 21 special air service, which is the reserve section of the SAS. I spent five years there. They were by far the toughest years of my life. Tough because special air service selection is so robust. The selection lasts one year. You're given two goes. In the 70-odd years of Special Air Service, there's only, to my knowledge, there's only one person who's ever done the selection course three times, and, and, and that is me, because, <laughs> because I failed the first two goes, uh, the first because of sickness and the second because of an injury. And there was that defining moment where I was called into the CO's office. He said... Right, you failed second time, you're only allowed two goes, you've binned. And I stood there and I said, Sir, will you please give me a third time? And he looked at me with such surprise because nobody had ever been given a third go. And what was a, an administrative decision for him turned out to be life-changing for me because I made the, the, the third selection and that grit and determination required to go back there a third time and to endure the hardship of that course. It gave me an energy and a determination which has seen me through some very, very tough times subsequently. At this point, Lewis is maintaining his job at the law firm whilst acting as a reservist for the SAS on the weekends. However, he was about to make another big change in his life and I ask him what prompted him to do so. One day I was standing outside St Paul's Cathedral. It was one of those beautiful summer's days. And there was a close friend of mine who was with me at law school, David Becker. And I looked at David and I said, God, Dave, I've been working here and I've been working for five years in London. I said to him, I just want to go to the Arctic. My parents made this place sound so amazing. And he looked at me and he said something very simple. He said, Lewis, he said, it's so important that you follow your own dreams in life because if you don't, you're going to be following somebody else's. And he said, imagine 
getting to the end of your life to realize I've just been following somebody else's dreams. He said, don't do that. And so I packed my bags and off I went to this island called uh, Svalbard, which is very close to the North Pole. And that was the next sort of stage of my life. What's it like when you first step off the plane and, and look out at the tundra? Well, well let, let me just take you from the journey. So you go from Gatwick Airport, you fly to Oslo, you fly from Oslo across the Arctic Circle right to, to, to a place called Trondheim and then from Trondheim all the way up to a place called Tromsø, uh, which is the most northern major city in, in Norway. And then you get on another plane and you fly all the way across the Arctic Ocean to this little island, an archipelago, a group of islands called Svalbard. As soon as I arrived there, I realized it, this was this was home. It was incredible, the beauty of this place. These fjords and then the glaciers and the mountain and then the, the ice. And in the winter, you have these northern lights. You look up and you have the, the reds and the orange and the purples and the greens sort of flying around in the heavens. And you imagine standing on the edge of the coast and looking out over a field and the field is frozen over. And you see a polar bear and her cub walking out on the ice. This, I mean, this was, this was where I was meant to be. What's the longest you've stayed up in the Arctic Circle? So I did seven summers there. I did one winter. I mean, I mean just to explain what a winter is like. Oof. November, December, January, February, it's 24 hours of darkness. Just imagine that, 24 hours of darkness. The sun doesn't come up for those four months. The female polar bears, they go deep down into their dens. The birds, they migrate all the way down to Africa. The sea ice freezes all the way up to the North Pole. It's quite easily minus 20, minus 30 degrees outside. It's one of the most inhospitable places on this planet. And you end up sort of becoming like an animal in this sense that you wake up uh, around about, about 10 o'clock. I, I do a little bit of work and then around about 3, 4 o'clock I go to sleep again. The opposite happens in the summer. In the summer now, we've got 24 hours of sunlight. The sea ice begins to unfreeze. The polar bears, they come out of their dens. The birds, they come back with their massive migrations. It's still very, very cold up there. But because you've got this midnight sun, so it's sunny all day long, the sun doesn't even go down below the horizon, you end up waking up at around about 3, 4 o'clock in the morning. And then in the evening, you go to bed at close on midnight. So you have a couple of hours sleep just because it's just wonderful to be outside. What are you doing? Who are you hanging out with? <laughs> <laughs> I soon got a close group of friends. But remember, I don't have a job now, and I ended up getting some jobs as, as, as a tour guide. I then went to live in a place called Honnensvog, which